electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and it's a new month, a fresh start, and we were hoping maybe a fresh start for the market. But coming off its worst month in 14 years since October 2008, the Nasdaq just went negative on the session today. It joins the Dow and the S&P, which have also turned lower. One of our guests insists we are close to the end of this sell-off. He'll tell us why and what are his plays. Plus, the six pillars of tech. From software to chips and 5G wireless, we'll look at the least bad stocks amid the tech trade wreckage. And we're just 48 hours away from a huge Fed meeting. Everyone expecting a half-point hike, but David Zervos is here to explain why peak inflation talk doesn't matter and the Fed can't afford to be complacent. We'll get to all of that in just a moment, but first out to Bob Bassani with the latest on these markets. Bob? And Kelly, we are essentially sitting at the lows for the day, and it's a problem for the markets, not a lot of conviction. So buy the dip has been replaced by sell the rip. Let's take a look at the major indices right now. S&P 500 uh, nearing the lows of last May, not quite there. Dow Industrials just above a 52-week low right now, but not far. Nasdaq's already there. Uh, It's essentially right now at a 17-month low. Uh, One good thing, some of these beaten-up tech, media, telecom stocks, they're bouncing a little bit today. So PayPal's had a a horrible start to the year. Meta as well. AMD's been down. Netflix, you know what's happened there. They're all bouncing nicely, although they're also off of their highs. Not a lot of convictions in these bounces. That's the problem, as I mentioned. Uh, Banks, though, sitting at new lows. All the big money center banks, uh, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America. Bank of America has significant China exposure. Some comments about that uh, over the weekend. Citigroup also 52-week low. Uh, A lot of uh, damage in the market, not just tech, industrial, some big names out there, Boeing, Rockwell, General Electric, uh, Dover sitting at 52-week lows, Cummins uh, engines sitting at 52-week lows uh, as well. Finally, here's a stock that really was a tremendous outperformer last year, NASDAQ. That's a new 52-week low, believe it or not. Dramatically outperformed last year, of course, on all the uh, tech transactions and tech trading going on. A lot of exposure there, of course, obviously, to equity clearing and trading new 52-week lows. Kelly, back to you. Bob Bassani, thank you very much. And 2.99% on the 10-year today. Why are yields suddenly spiking again after taking it easy amid the stock sell-off last week? Let's turn to Rick Santelli for some answers. Rick? Well, you know, the lead up to the Federal Reserve meeting should never be underestimated. As a matter of fact, it is pretty much like getting ready to go to a doctor's appointment or a dentist's appointment. The markets get a little bit nervous, and you can see it in all maturities. And by the way, all maturities right now, all of them across the entire coupon curve, twos through thirties, if they close where they're at here, be it fresh cycle high yield closes. And it's almost back to back. We missed by like a third of a basis point in some of the maturities on Friday. Look at an intraday of five. And notice that when it traded above 295, it hit a big pocket because that was the previous high close. And that now takes us to November of 2018 since we closed up here. However, let's do a zoom. We are so close to actually a close trading back to 2008 
with respect to where yields are as we start to trade and hold over 3%. Ten-year, very similar. Look at intraday of tens, and look what happened when it traded above the previous day's highs. Boom, another air pocket hit when we traded above 294. And right now, if you zoom it, it'll be the highest yield close since around Thanksgiving of 2018. However, you see what that high is? That high in November of 18 is 3.24%, which means all your technicians in research land are going to be saying three and a quarter, three and a quarter. That's why. But zoom that back to February of 2011, because then all of a sudden we start to get into yields that we haven't seen in many years. But that will be formidable resistance. And one of the reasons why yields are going up beside the Fed meeting Remember, all stimulus is fungible. If the U.S. adds, the whole global economy does better. When the U.S. takes away, the whole global economy doesn't do as well. And there are many central banks now within the G7 process that are going to be shrinking their balance sheet. And taking that away is going to impact global growth. Kelly, back to you. Thank you, Rick. Rick Santelli. Well, peak inflation, the trimmed mean CPI. Don't be distracted by talk that inflationary pressures are retreating, says my next guest. David Zervos has been warning investors since January that a hawkish Fed will cast a pall over the market, and he's been correct about that. Now he says the FOMC will need to act hawkish and stay hawkish no matter how inflation evolves in the near term in order to keep long-term inflation expectations in check. So what's it all mean for investors? David joins me now. He is the chief market strategist at Jefferies. It's good to see you again, and you're not about to to say here, hey, that the battle's been fought, you know, here we go. Now we can all kind of have smooth sailing ahead from here. Why not? Well, first of all, Kelly, we're, we're sort of just beginning this tightening cycle. We're going to get, uh, you know, a 50 basis point move. We've had the 25. We're going to get expectations kind of set in stone a little bit with the balance sheet. And I think we're going to also discuss how this balance sheet might uh, might get uh, more quickly wound down if, in the event that inflation does not come down faster. And that could be through uh, things like asset sales, which I think we've also discussed. So I think the market uh, has to be prepared for a Fed that is um, is really setting up to battle uh, one of the largest or the largest inflation uh, move that we've seen in nearly 40 years. It's something that um, you know, none of these Fed officials have ever experienced. They've never sat on a committee when inflation was at these levels. Do you think they're going to use the meeting this week to prepare people for the possibility of a 75 basis point hike in the future? You know, I don't, Kelly. And I, I mean, it's possible, but I don't think that's a base case. I, I think what we're going to find is that if they go too fast on the front end, they're going to invert this curve, much like what happened in the beginning of the year as we started to see them get more hawkish. And then they turned to the balance sheet and sort of opened that line of thinking up as a way of also tightening financial conditions and the curve steepened back up. And so I think I think they're going to focus a little bit more on the balance sheet just to make sure they don't invert that curve. So a 75 could really uh, rattle the curve. And I think shake a little bit of confidence in their ability to either execute a soft landing or do this, do this without some sort of uh, major major effect on growth. That said, I do think um, a base case recession uh, in this tightening cycle is is probably a a very reasonable base case that that we're going to get one. A base case recession, which is similar to what we heard uh, this morning from uh, one of the former Fed officials. We'll have that a little bit later in the show. But so you're basically saying there's no way they can avoid a recession at this point. Is there anything they can do? 
Well, you know, I don't think we should all get that scared about a recession, Kelly. I mean, a couple of quarters of negative growth surrounded by a couple of quarters of positive growth isn't the end of the world. We're coming off of, you know, 5% plus growth last year. Um, we, we've only averaged a little under 2% since COVID first began, so it's not great. But I think we have to kind of accept that this inflation scare, and whether it's come from over-aggressive policy or whether it's come from supply shocks doesn't matter at this stage. It just has to be dealt with, and you have to take the medicine. And we're going to take the medicine, and, uh, and I think it's going to hurt a little bit. You feel it today. You feel it uh, for the last four months. Uh, but, you know, we've had a heck of a run, and we have the tools to kind of deal with recessions, too. Um, so, if we need to, when it gets really bad, we know we can, we can handle that. We've done that in the last two recessions pretty well. So I think the number one priority is getting this inflation down. And the idea that somehow a little growth scare or even a modest recession is going to dislodge the Fed's movements here um, to fight the inflation, I think, is a miscalculation by many. Do you think the market has now priced this in? And at what point do you turn more bullish or constructive on stocks? You know, I think a lot of it just really depends on the trajectory for inflation and the supply disruptions, as well as um, you know how how the market responds and, and the economy responds to these higher rates. So I think we're going to watch this inflation trajectory through the end of the year. We have some good comps in the next quarter. We have some bad comps in th the third quarter. It's going to be a dicey one. But I, I think it's I, I think there's reasons to be optimistic on on why growth isn't going to collapse. We have a very strong labor market. We have a very strong housing market. A lot of those are, are fundamental driven, not rate driven. Um, and and I, don't, I don't see a major collapse. But look, we just had a negative 1.4 GDP print uh, and nobody was really seeing that. Uh, could we get more negatives? We sure could. And we could even get that with the unemployment rates staying pretty low. Uh, we're just we've got a, a lot of supply problems out there. They're very different than demand issues. So I'm I'm not that scared of a recession. Uh, I'm I'm more scared that politics get in the way of the Fed fighting the inflation. And that would really undermine a lot of the credibility that they've built up over the last 40 years. I don't see that as a base case. I think Jay very much wants to go uh, aggressively against this inflation. I think he has the green light to do it. Final question to those who say, what's the point of the Fed fighting inflation, causing a recession and then responding to the recession when they could just uh, wait it out, quote unquote, or let it resolve itself? What would you say to that? I'd say look at the inflation trajectory over the last 40 years. We've come so far in beating inflation and beating what was a, a terrible uh, situation for the economy and for the central bank coming out of the 70s and early 80s. We have real risks that we could dislodge long-term inflation expectations if the Fed does not show that it can control them. Uh, and it needs to show that. It needs to show that it can use QE when we need it and take it away when we don't. And to the extent that inflation stays sticky and causes uh, gridlock in the economy and those long-term inflation expectations get uh, undermined, that, that really puts uh, the Fed in a predicament when we need them the most, when we get a big shock in the future, we get a COVID, we get a, a 2008, or we get, a, um, or, or we get any major uh, recession. So I think it's very important for them to maintain the credibility they've earned. And I think they're doing that. They've done that. The market is pricing that in with inflation expectations at the long end and in the break-evens, uh, in the five-year, five-year in particular. So they just got to keep that, and they will. I, I'm confident in that, and that might, that might just hurt a little bit. You know, it's not always fun and games, Kelly. We can't always be enjoying the medicine of QE. Sometimes we got to take it away. Right, and we'll know that you're, uh, you know, that the t 
we'll know it's time for a new era when the brokenhearted hat is gone behind you. <laughs> and we new- still got it. You know, it's still here. I'm, you know, I'm still wearing it. Put it away. We're going to bring back, we're going to bring back some love soon, but it ain't time just yet. Yeah. I think we just went down another 20 points just seeing that hat. David, thanks so much. Right. We really appreciate right. it. Thanks. David Zervos Bye-bye. of Jeffries. Now, on top of what you just heard from Mr. Zervos, Roger Ferguson, the former Fed vice chair, was on Squawk Box this morning, sounding his own dire warning about the economy. Listen. I think a recession is at this stage you know, almost inevitable um, because they don't control supply. And we've seen how volatile supply can be with the uh, shutdown in China. Um, we also see uncertainty about oil prices up and down, et cetera. And so, you know, as I've said earlier, it's a witch's brew. And the probability of a recession is, I think, unfortunately, very, very high. All right. Well, my next guest says, take a deep breath. Relax, everybody. The significant market damage we've done is behind us, and there are attractive opportunities amid this downturn. Let's welcome in David Katz. He's the chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, you choose to battle the prevailing narrative here. Uh, For what reason and why do you see things more constructively? We're taking a longer view. You always sound a lot smarter during a down market being very negative because the things that are negative out there are so pronounced and it's easy to focus on them and assume they never get better. What the market is not doing right now is looking at a lot of the positives that are also out there. So as a result of this correction, stocks are now selling at about 18 and a half times this year's earnings and about 16, 17 times next year's earnings. That's a reasonable valuation. Rates are going up, but they're still relatively low. We do expect relief by on inflation by late summer, early fall. And, and we're more optimistic about the economy. We're spending lots of time with uh, many of the investments we own, spoke with all the banks. And what they're seeing is a very strong consumer, very strong businesses, borrowings up. So we think that the glass is half full, yet the, it's being priced as if we're going into that recession that everybody is talking about. And you're able to buy a lot of great businesses at very attractive prices historically, that's been a very good time to be putting money to work. You like the financials in particular here. Why? And names like PNC, U.S. Bank, Morgan Stanley are all places you think investors can look? Well, the businesses are doing well. They ultimately will be a beneficiary by higher rates. Their loan portfolios are very good uh, and people are starting to borrow more. Yet you're buying them at about 10, 10 and a half times earnings. They're all down about 20 percent. We think it's a great time to be putting money in them. And we also are liking more and more of the market right now. We're like industrials. We like select technology. There are just lots of places out there with very good businesses that are selling at really attractive valuations. A lot of stocks are at 10, 11 times earnings. Uh, We think historically you've made a lot of money in that. Last thing I point out in terms of corrections, generally after a correction, and right now we're at about 12, 13 percent for the S&P, 20 percent for the growth areas, you recover back to your highs within about five months. Hmm. And those uh, returns and those bounce backs occur when they're least expected. Uh, People are going to still be very negative after you get that first 10 percent recovery. Things will start to be looking a little bit better. The time to buy uh, is when things look very negative, but you're getting these really good businesses at attractive prices. Let's name a couple of them outside of the financials that you also like. And I see Alphabet, Qualcomm, even our parent company, Comcast, which has had a rough stretch lately. We're dumbstruck on Comcast. They had a good quarter, a good outlook, yet it sells at an absurdly low valuation. We think as a long-term company, you're getting a great company, a great price. We really like the management a lot. Uh, Google had a good quarter, not a great quarter, but it sells at 18 and a half times earnings. That's a really good price for a great business. TIA Connectivity uh, is electronics. They're a great play, second derivative on electric vehicles, very attractive price. 
Qualcomm had a shockingly good quarter. A lot of companies are talking about the China shutdown slowing their business. Qualcomm kept and upped their guidance. It sells at a very attractive 12, 13 times earnings. Uh, they're far more than just a communications and, and wireless cell phone play, uh, and you're getting it at a great price. Well, we appreciate your uh, coming on in such a tough market, uh, giving investors some hope and some strategies. David, thanks for your time today. Great to be here. Have a good day. David Katz with Matrix. Speaking of financials, quick programming note, Bank of America's CEO Brian Moynihan will join us on Power Lunch at the top of the next hour. I will ask him about the market, the Fed, and a whole lot more. Stay tuned for that. Coming up here, the technical trade for the market. Big names like Meta, Apple, and Amazon are near key levels of support. What happens if they break through? We'll ask Katie Stockton and bring you two of her favorite charts, including one opportunity in a legacy blue chip name. Plus, the tech sector is down 20% from its all-time highs. We're going to look at six pillars of the group to see where the stalwarts amid the sell-off are. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on rates. There it is on the screen. Whoa, wish I could circle that. Go. Da- Can I walk over there? Let's walk over there, everybody. You got to see what's going on right now. The 10-year yield just punched above. Here I come. Right here. 3%. There we go, everybody. The woman in the shadows pointing out. The 10-year yield has just punched above 3% for the first time in a couple of years. We're going to have a whole lot more right after the break. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks have had a pretty tough year, that goes without saying. And the S&P is nearing the 4,100 level uh, that we're going to ask my next guest about. We're going to get some technical analysis from one of the best, Fairlead Strategies, Katie Stockton, who joins me now. Katie, quick audible here, if you don't mind. The 10-year Treasury yield just punched above 3%. Could you just start there and tell us what the implications of this move are? Well, you know, it's a very psychologically significant hurdle for the 10-year Treasury yield, and yet it's not really an important resistance level for it. We have to go back to the 2018 high to reference that, which is about three and a quarter. We, of course, have seen very positive or upside momentum behind Treasury yields, and that's no change today, of course, with it punching through that level. But it is just sort of a round number that we can see as another threshold being cleared by them. Wow. So that then means what you think for, you know, the implications. I know you're a little bit bearish still on the markets, but you say there are some some sort of glimmers of hope. Does this change any of that? 
Not really. I mean, we've seen obviously 10-year treasury yields trend higher and, and pretty sharply at that for a couple of months. And it, it's not been good for the equity market. So we're just watching for really more of the same at this point. In the same way that treasury yields are not reacting to overbought conditions, we're seeing the S&P 500 and other major indices not react to oversold conditions. And that's a message from the market. It's just a, a testament to the momentum in either direction behind both. And I think that we should assume, especially as these levels and thresholds are cleared, uh, both to the upside by Treasury yields and the downside by these major indices, that we'll see more of the same. All right. So here's the S&P at 4101. It was really 4200 that you were watching, especially on a weekly basis. Uh, We obviously closed below that on Friday. What now? That's right. So that leaves a breakdown in our work pending confirmation this Friday and a week close below about 4,200. And that unfortunately would mark a confirmed breakdown. And I think for those of you that follow the charts can see the same thing that I'm seeing, which is a head and shoulders top potentially. The targeted level from that would become secondary support of roughly 38.15. And we use support levels as a gauge of downside risk. It's really the best thing, in my opinion, that the market lends itself to in terms of risk management. It doesn't mean we'll see it necessarily stop right at that level, uh, but at least that's a level to help us understand what downside might be. And I want to ask about some you know, specific areas uh, that you're watching. We mentioned a blue chip name, but what are the glimmers of hope? Because everything you're describing sounds like it's sending a pretty clear signal to investors right now that uh, there's more selling pressure coming. I mean, I think we all know that we're in this kind of higher volatility regime or cycle. And and in that kind of environment, you tend to see the major indices either sideways overall or trending lower. And and we tend to see at the same time defensive sectors of the market outperform. Of course, outperformance doesn't always mean that they're trending higher in absolute terms. So in a way, it forces us to live in a bit of a relative world where we're looking for outperformance and acknowledging the fact that there is downside momentum behind the major indices. So it's going to be more difficult to take advantage of any individual stock on the upside. That said, we just culled the list of defensive sectors. We are looking for new ideas of which it's really difficult to find them from a technical perspective because so few have positive catalysts, meaning things like momentum buy signals or oversold upturns. We just aren't seeing a lot of that right now. But we came across Procter & Gamble PG as a name that's in a long-term uptrend, pulling back in here from some resistance where you would expect it to pull back, but it hasn't seen the same loss of long-term upside momentum that the broader market has. And also it has exhibited very positive relative strength. So here we are, we're just looking for those names that have decent relative strength and trying to stay the course on those while otherwise managing risk by exposure to other asset classes. Quick final question, if they will let me. The VIX also, interestingly enough, the volatility gauge itself comes up to you as one whose chart doesn't look terrible. So is that a good sign, a bad sign, or, or just a sign of, of a different kind of market than we've been in in the recent past? I mean, I think the latter. It's obviously an indication of that higher volatility regime. You can see the long-term momentum shift behind the VIX that affirms that, and it tells us that market sentiment is something that we really need to pay attention to. It also currently is telling us that market sentiment isn't bearish enough to suggest that we have an intermediate-term low at hand. Although that said, the VIX does face a minor resistance level in the mid-30s, so it'd be natural to see in the coming days a little bit of relief, both for volatility 
and in terms of upside, it may allow support to be preserved yet another week. All right. Procter & Gamble is our glimmer of hope today. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Good Katie to see Stockton you. with BTIG. Still, or I should say with Fairly. Still ahead, the union battle at Starbucks is getting hotter with representatives now taking aim at the interim CEO Howard Schultz, claiming his recent comments about benefits amount to illegal threats. CNBC has exclusive details on what the union is alleging, with the shares down 1% today and 36% on the year. Plus, the S&P is down 14% in four months. The Nasdaq had its worst month since 08, and every major index is now negative on a 52-week basis. So is this still a normal correction or something more sinister in the works? As we head to break, let's do a final check on the Dow heat map with about 10 of the names in the green today. Amex, Boeing, and Visa are the worst performers as the 10-year punches 3% for the first time since December 2018. We're back in a moment. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Take a look at shares of Starbucks, which are near session lows right now and actually trading at their lowest level since last July. No, almost two Julys ago, since July of 2020. Union reps are now out with a letter filing a charge with the NLRB against Starbucks and interim CEO Howard Schultz. Let's get out to Kate Rogers with all the details. Kate. Hey, Kelly, the union alleging in that filing that Starbucks, via comments made by interim CEO Schultz, violated the National Labor Relations Act. The charge charge filed with the NLRB stems from these comments that were made by Schultz to U.S. store leaders last month that the company was reviewing its benefits program, but that new benefits couldn't legally be extended to stores that have unionized without separately negotiated contracts. Now, the union alleges, quote, Schultz's comments had an immediate and profound chilling effect on organizing campaigns nationwide in a letter obtained by CNBC from its counsel to the NLRB in Seattle. It offers workers to testify that Starbucks baristas read about the comments in media reports shortly before voting, and some pulled their support last minute as a result, costing a union win at one location in Virginia. It also claims that store managers have, quote, parroted the comments, having a coercive effect on unionizing. Now, Starbucks defended Schultz in a statement to CNBC saying, quote, this is not a matter of Howard's choice or opinion. This is the law. Any new benefit cannot be unilaterally given to stores that have voted to unionize during collective bargaining. Howard remains focused on moving quickly to build the future of Starbucks with partners together side by side. So once again, more back and forth here. But really, for the first time that we've seen the union actually naming Schultz's actions in particular, saying that they were in violation of this federal law. And it's been fascinating to watch both Starbucks and Amazon kind of downplaying the early unionization efforts and now having to come out much more strongly uh, as they continue. Kate, we appreciate
appreciate it. Thanks for bringing that to us, our Kate Rogers. Uh, you can also read more in Kate's full piece over on CNBC.com slash pro. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. A former Philadelphia police officer is being charged with murder for shooting a young boy in March. The city's district attorney told reporters that Edsel Mendoza is facing several charges, including first-degree murder. Mendoza is accused of firing three shots at the boy during a foot chase. The final shot went into the boy's back after the 12-year-old had thrown his gun away, they say, and was lying face down on the ground. A former New York City police officer who claimed he was acting in self-defense has been convicted of assaulting a Washington cop during the January 6th Capitol attack. Thomas Webster, seen here in video released by federal prosecutors, was accused of tackling the officer and grabbing his gas mask. And Russian soccer teams, including its national team, will not be playing in European competitions next season. And UEFA, UEFA has also thrown out the country's bids to host the Euro tournament in 2028 or 2032 in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tonight on the news with Shep Smith, the raucous Republican primary for the Ohio Senate seat being vacated by Republican Rob Portman. Two of the frontrunners came close to a fist fight during a debate. Kate, we'll see you in about a half an hour. All right, Ty, looking forward to it. Thank you. Still ahead, if you thought supply chain woes were over, the Wall Street Journal's Greg Ipp is asking you to think again why the supply chain could be snarled for years to come and what needs to be done to get it back on course. We're back in two. Welcome back. We are 48 hours from the Fed's decision Wednesday, and it's not just the half-point hike that's widely expected. The Fed's also embarking on an aggressive shrinking of the balance sheet. As the Wall Street Journal detailed this weekend, they're doing quantitative tightening at twice the pace of any previous drawdown, and the fear is that aggressive rate hikes with a bond runoff could be messy for markets and the economy. Joining me now is Greg Ipp. He's the chief economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal. You were early, Greg, to note that the safe landing odds here aren't great. Um, what would you say ahead of this meeting, though, to uh, a, a pretty concerned investor base? I don't think I have much that's very comforting, uh, Kelly, as um, as you and I have been talking about over the months. I mean, the Fed's got a real problem. Uh, past soft landings occurred when all they were trying to do is prevent inflation from going up. Now inflation is already too high, and they're trying to push it back down. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're in this rush to start runoff on the balance sheet. As you were mentioning a minute ago, the last time they did this, which began in 2017, because inflation was already so low, they really weren't in any hurry. And they proceeded very gradually. They maxed out at $50 billion a month of runoff. They wanted this to be as boring as watching paint dry. But inflation today is like 8% or higher, depending on the way you uh, measure it. They want to get that rate down, and they basically waited too long to start this process of tightening financial conditions. So I think that's one of the reasons why they need to get the process started soon, why they're going to ramp up quickly and they're going to do it much faster. And I think that, unfortunately for investors, they're going to be much less swayed by the pain in the markets, such as what we're seeing today. Uh, it's going to have, make much less difference to them in terms of how fast they go. If anything, it helps achieve their goal because the goal is more or less a tightening of financial conditions and, and kind of breaking the economy. What about the supply chain piece, Greg? Because a lot of what you're talking about into the future is predicated more on wage gains and services inflation. But we shouldn't discount the fact that supply chain problems can still contribute and be sticky, right? 
Well, this is the real problem for the Fed, right? I mean, let's go back to Econ 101. Inflation is, occurs when demand exceeds supply. What central banks do is they move interest rates around in order to uh, modulate demand. They can't do anything about supply. We've always known that. And here we have a situation where, yes, we have strong demand, but we keep getting hit by one supply shock after another. First, it was like COVID. Then it was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and now we have layered on top of that all sorts of protectionist actions and other things going on. Last week, Russia cut off gas supplies to Eastern Europe. Indonesia banned exports of palm oil. I, the thing I worry about, Kelly, is that we're facing many years of an environment in which that keeps throwing up supply shocks like this. A little bit of a history lesson. People often forget that the 1970s wasn't just a period when we had strong demand and wage price spirals. We also had one supply shock after another, not just energy, but also food. Mm. That just makes life really hard for central banks. You're right, because if the fundamental problem is too much demand, it, it creates shortages everywhere. The other thing I wonder about, Greg, is, you know, if the Fed doesn't fix this, politicians are going to try to. And we've already seen some pretty um, interesting proposals <laughs> aimed at, you know, containing inflation. And the longer this becomes entrenched, the more political um, firepower that fiscal policymakers are going to have to try to bring this down their way and possibly create an economy that's even less dynamic and more inflationary in the medium term. Right. I know. It's definitely not encouraging when the best solution that policymakers, that Congress can come up with to this inflation problem is to cut the gasoline tax, right. whether at the federal <laughs> or the state level. I mean, what does that do? It, it increases, increases demand. demand for gasoline, right. Right? right? You know, so that is not helping. However, let's step back also and look at the cyclical picture, though, for a moment, though, because one of the things we're seeing on going on in the markets is that I think that we have three hits to economic growth happening all at the same time. The first is supply shock effects you and I have just been talking about, like higher energy prices, higher food prices. That's like a tax increase. Second of all, there's no more fiscal stimulus. In fact, when you look at the numbers, the degree of fiscal tightening this year is almost a record. And third, the Fed is working away at the background on both the short-term interest rate and long-term rates. Long-term rates are up more in six months, uh, in the last six months, than they have been in any six-month period back to uh, 1994. So that's a triple-barreled um, dose of uh, economic headwinds that the market and the economy are going to have to deal with. So I think that, you know, Painful as it may be, these forces will start to actually have the usual predictable effect on both demand and inflation. Well, in which case, maybe we can get back to normal after a very tough period of sailing uh, ahead of us. Greg, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, we thank you okay. so much for all your time and thoughts. Gregory Ip from The Wall Street Journal. Still ahead, we're digging through the wreckage to find some names holding up in what CNBC is calling our six pillars of tech. We will tell you about the standouts after this quick break. Welcome back, everybody. Tech stocks have gotten slammed lately, but we're drilling down in the sector to find the best performers, the names that have withstood this vicious sell-off, kind of. Christina Partsnevelis is here with her six pillars of tech. Christina? Well, the Nasdaq, like you mentioned, is, you know, it's already down over 20% this year alone. So what's actually propping up this index? Let's break it down into six pillars. We've got software, hardware, semiconductors, cybersecurity, the cloud, and lastly, a newer pillar as well, 5G. But I want to own in on three, starting with hardware. Of all the tech giants, none is more reliant on hardware than Apple. And not only is the company facing antitrust issues in Europe, but also providing a sobering warning about the upcoming June quarter. And why is that? We're seeing broad declines across PCs, servers, and hard drives. But year to date, 
The best of the batch include HP Enterprise, Teledyne, Corning, and yet you can see on your screen right there, all in the red. And the downward trend in hardware is weighing on the chip sector, another pillar. The best year-to-date include Texas Instruments, Analog Devices, Intel, Broadcom, and Qualcomm, but you can also see all in the red. By the way, I want to point out Volkswagen has also selected Qualcomm to supply technology for its next generation of autonomous cars, so Qualcomm is up slightly on the day-to-day. But it's not all a sea of red this year. Cybersecurity is still chugging along despite many firms remaining unprofitable. You've got SailPoint up 32%, Mandian up a close 26%, Lidos and Checkpoint also up about double digits just this year alone. But we can see by many of these outperformers, Kelly, that big tech isn't saving the day this time around. Well, that's, uh, to put it mildly, Christina, thank you very much, Christina (laughs) Parsonevelis. So it was none of the names she mentioned yet, but there are names in these sectors that could be safe haven buys here. Let's bring in Quint Tatro. He's founder and president of Jewel Financial. Uh, Quint, drumroll please, your three picks across uh, these six pillars, where, what are they? Where, Where do you look and what would they be? Sure, Kelly, thanks for having me, first of all. But we're gonna have to go and drill down a little bit deeper. Uh, names that I think not many, a lot of people might not be familiar with to try to find some value. So the first is in the security pillar, and we like NetScout here. Uh, It's a small cap. Uh, They had an outstanding fiscal two uh, quarter back in November. They report this week, so we're going to be watching very closely to see what they say. Uh, But this is a company trading 15 times forward estimates, a little bit more than one times book with $7 uh, per share in cash. Uh, They're servicing basically the enterprise software world with their security solutions, and I think that they're poised uh, for further upside. The second one in the semi-world, and again, you got to drill down a little bit, is WolfSpeed. And WolfSpeed makes a chip with silicon carbide that services the electric vehicle market. Now, this company is trying to return to profitability. They've been working on improving their balance sheet. They also report this week, but we like this in the chip space because of the tie to electric vehicles. And then finally, in the 5G pillar, we're gonna go with Sienna here. And Sienna is our 5G play, helping all things infrastructure. And it's really just a a sort of a growth at reasonable price. It's trading 14 times next year's earnings. Those earnings are set to grow about 25%, and it's relatively inexpensive, trading around 2.5% three times sale and and about three times book. So again, a 5G, a semi, and then a security pillar, that's what we're looking at. So it's interesting because we've had similar segments to this previously, Quint, where the theme that emerged to me was almost, if you've heard of it, don't buy it. Why is it that, you know, why is it that we're looking for these really under the radar names, the kind of names you typically almost never even hear mentioned on CNBC or read about in Barron's except maybe, you know, 35 pages in? Yeah, not yet, right? So I think we're going through a transition phase. I I think this market, as painful and frustrating as it is, you just had Christina talk about the old leaders and the old leaders are falling. And unfortunately, you know, they're taking the the indices down with them because of the market cap. It's a market cap weighted index, the S&P. So I think what we're looking for is we're looking for new leadership to emerge. And maybe they're the names that end up on the front page in a few years. But we find them before everyone else. Final quick question. You mentioned NetScout and WolfSpeed both report this week. You aren't a little more nervous about the way earnings season has been going uh, for any investor. Should they should they kind of let that dust settle first uh, in case there isn't a, a, a shoe to drop? 
I'm really happy you brought that up because you're right. Earnings has been very, very difficult, even if you report decent numbers on semi this morning, great numbers in the stock you know, well off the day highs. So uh, very there's zero rush here at all. Hmm. It, it, these are not earnings plays right now. These are just new themes that we're watching. We have a smaller than normal position in them going into these earnings for sure. But I think if they if they have good reports and then they actually sell off on those reports, we'd be looking to add the names there. All right. We appreciate the playbook, Quint. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Quint Tatro of Jewel Financial. And markets are extending last week's sell-off, so is it too soon for investors to go bottom-feeding for some of the most beaten-down stocks? We're going to get the take from Schwab's Liz Ann Saunders next. Welcome back. Everybody, look at these three major averages. They are well off their highs. The Dow is down about 12% off its highs. The S&P is 15% off its highs. The NASDAQ is 25% off of its highs. All the major indices here are negative on a 52-week basis now. And there are some signs emerging uh, as we look at these figures that this may not be a run-of-the-mill correction. Let's get to Mike Santoli down at the NYSE. Mike? Yeah, Kelly, you know, in terms of magnitude of the declines for the S&P 500, it's nothing extraordinary. The average intra-year decline uh, in the S&P since 1980 has been 14 percent. So we're right in the zone there. However, just some exacerbating factors this time around that does make it seem as if it's a bit more than just a textbook pullback, or at least has the prospect to be. One is the losses that investors are taking on the fixed income side. Bond yields going up, 10-year Treasury yield hitting 3 percent. It's spent almost no time above that level over the last decade. And when it did, it did pinch equity valuations even more. Uh, And that's happening when you have slowdown fear. So I think that just reduces the amount of risk-taking capital out there if you're losing on the bond side, too. Uh, The other part of it is this 2018 uh, playbook. I was not one who said it was going to unfold this way, but some have basically said the last time the Fed stayed too tight in a a slowing economy, you did get a 20 percent high to low decline in the S&P 500. It was a little more indiscriminate in terms of the selling. We're not there yet, but it was a brief stab down to a minus 20 percent. And that was without a recession. And arguably, this might be having uh, happening without a recession as well. The earnings is is still the part that remains relatively steady. Uh, And so it all has been uh, about essentially reducing the amount we're paying for earnings. Again, that's textbook. When the Fed starts to tighten, the profit cycle matures. You just valuations get compressed. The mega caps are really dragging on things because they got the most expensive. Finally, Kelly, it's probably still pretty orderly as far as the Fed's concerned. The trailing three-year return on the S&P is 14% annualized. That's not exactly like we're cutting into muscle yet. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Mike Santoli. One of Warren Buffett's top market gauges continues to show that stocks are overvalued, even with the recent sell-off. What it is and what it could mean for the next move in this market, we're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's take a quick check on the markets. The Dow's down 325 points. Uh, Stocks, by the way, started out in positive territory this morning. So this picture has been darkening, unfortunately, as we've moved throughout the session today. The Dow is down 1%. The S&P down just slightly more than that. It has dipped below 4,100 now. As you heard from Katie Stockton earlier this hour, it was really coming below 4,200 that upset a lot of chartists and we're well below those levels right now. The Nasdaq is holding up relatively better. It's down about 
about two-thirds of 1%, uh, but it is in negative territory as well. One culprit today is this move in yields. The 10-year note there, you can see in the green on the top of your screen, 2.975%. The 10-year yield briefly punched above 3% about 45 minutes ago. 3.002 was the high mark. And as Rick Santelli told us, we've seen this kind of trading action going into Fed meetings before. Uh, a little bit of whatever you want to call it, sell the rumor by the fact in the world of bonds. Another thing that's not helping this situation right now, remember last week when stocks were selling off, we had bond yields moving lower. We even had crude oil and some of the commodity complex rolling over. Uh, but this afternoon, again, we're not seeing that same trend play out. WTI crude up three quarters of 1% to back over $105 a barrel. And here's a look at the financials, you might expect them to react positively to the move higher in yields that we just showed you. And yet look at the slide that the XLF, the financial spider ETF has taken here. Really since about noon, uh, it's now down more than one and a half percent. And the semiconductors as well, often one of those benchmark kind of barometer segments of the market have gone from green throughout much of the morning, flipping into negative territory. The SMH ETF down by half a percent. Here's a look at what that means for the tech spider, the XLK down eight-tenths of one percent as a lot of investors still digesting the earnings reports last week. Others are simply looking for places to reallocate their money as the move higher and in interest rates continue. So we're about five basis points off the session high today. We hit it shortly after 1 p.m. Uh, the Fed meeting at on Wednesday obviously will conclude with their thoughts about rate hikes, balance sheet reduction, and what that will mean for the next move in the rates and stock market complex. So on that note, everybody, thanks for your time here on The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.